0: church, and he's written it to the church worldwide, really. Everyone that's a believer can benefit from what they read in Second Peter. But as we arrive there, what we find is that the key verse, and I can't remember what verse it is now, but it says, let, let us grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the idea of being a believer is not that we get saved and maintain that same level of maturity in a relationship with the Lord our entire life. The purpose of salvation isn't just to save us, but it's also part of what God uses to sanctify us. God sanctifies us by we give our heart to Him, and He, over time, continually, as it's subjected to the teaching of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit cleanses our hearts and this is important in the Christian life because if you think about it, what did Jesus, Jesus say about the, the human heart? He said it's deceitfully wicked, but he also said keep your heart with all diligence. That's what Proverbs says because out of it spring the issues of life. And then Jesus goes on to say and kind of develops it further when he's walking on this earth. He says, you know, it's what comes out of the heart that defiles a man. And in defiling man with the fruit of our lips, what's coming out of the fountain of our heart, we end up defiling many. And so... Uh, The idea is we need to be subjected to the lordship of Jesus, not just outwardly with our actions, but with our whole heart, so that when we speak out of turn, what comes out of us, rather than wrath and and spitefulness and the works of the flesh, it, it actually comes words of life. We become a fountain of living water as we are attached to and tied into the fountain of living water, Jesus. And so he says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So that's the point of this letter more than anything. So one of the marks of maturity is not only recognizing what we've been given as believers, but also recognizing who Jesus is, recognizing what he has done, remembering the foundation of our faith. And that's where we landed at the end of chapter one last week. Uh, Peter here writes, he says in verse 16 of chapter one, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but instead we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. And he quotes what he heard on that day. He's referencing back to this thing that physically took place where jesus takes peter james and john up to the mount we call mount of transfiguration and he it's like he slips the veil back just a little bit so they can get a glimpse of the kingdom of god and he's got human flesh on him so dark is human flesh that when he put it on himself nobody recognized who he was he's the king of glory and yet when he peels back the veil just a a teensy bit we get this future glimpse of what Jesus is going to be in his kingdom. He says here that when he went up there and was transfigured, and we read it last week, one of Mark writes that his, his clothing became so white, whiter than any garment could be cleansed by a launderer. And Luke actually makes an account and says that it was bright, so bright that it was almost blinding. So interestingly enough, as this takes place, the Father, God the Father, speaks from heaven, and Peter hears it, remembers it, and writes it down in this letter that they weren't following these cunningly devised fables, but God literally spoke from heaven and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And if you remember, Peter had spoken up and said, Wow, look at this. You got Jesus, and you got Elijah, and you got Moses all standing together. Why don't I build a tabernacle for each one of you, and we can all just camp out here? Now, we're, here we are on Labor Day weekend, right? Lots of folks are camping. Uh, you know, is he really offering Jesus something great? Like, I'll build you a little log cabin, and we can all hang out up here together. And But what, what you don't want to miss out on is that he's making Elijah, one of the prophets, and Moses, the giver of the law, who he received from God and then gave to the people. And Jesus is all on an equal playing field. Now, this wouldn't seem like that big of a deal, except Jesus is the God of Elijah and Moses. He said all of the law, Moses, and the prophets can be summed up in this, and that's in Jesus Christ. He, he's the one that fulfills all of the prophets that's spoken of and will fulfill all the rest he hasn't fulfilled yet, and he will fulfill and did fulfill the entire law so that we could be saved by his making atonement for us as the spotless, blemishless lamb of God. And so with Jesus, having been spoken of there, Peter says, I'm going to build you all a tabernacle, and God speaks again. He doesn't write that here, but God speaks again and says, this is my son. Listen to him. The emphasis being on these guys are great, but listen to Jesus. Because what did they ask him? They said, Jesus, what's the greatest of all the laws? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. So he summed up the law and the prophets. Isn't it interesting that we many times think with the multitude of words, he can explain something better. And yet Jesus comes on the scene and he really comparatively to some of the Old Testament prophets says very little, but says so much. Man, I hope to glean that. I hope to learn that. And I know you guys hope I will too. (laughs) But here we are. He refers back to this experience that he had, but then he also, experience is great, but if it doesn't align with the word of God, it can actually deceive you. It can actually uh, lead you astray. Experience and feelings can lead you astray. And so he says here, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. But then he says in verse 19, and so we have this prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. He says all that Jesus did was confirmed, not just by experience, but the word of God said that he would do these things, that he would reveal himself to mankind, that the government would be upon his shoulders, that he would set captives free, that he would give sight to the blind, that he would actually suffer and die for the sin of the world. These are all great experiences, but if the word of God didn't testify that this would happen ahead of time, we would have nothing to measure and say, well, this is actually true. And so that's why the condemnation is upon those that rejected him. He came to his own and his own did not recognize him. They didn't receive him, even though they had... This two-thirds of the Bible that we look at and we say, this is the word of God spoken through many men and women. And so the reality is um, the word of God has to be compared to the experiences that we have with God. And if they don't compare, if they don't agree with one another, then it wasn't God. We need to be careful. And so he says, we have this prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed or to listen to and take action with as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. It has one author, has one intended meaning. And we need to be careful with that because people like to take God's word and make it mean whatever they want it to. But if the application is not drawn from the specific context, then it's not God's word speaking to you. But then he goes on to say, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. I've heard individuals in my life that are very close to me say, well, you know, you can't trust God's word because man spoke it. But what we find out from Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, and from this passage is that verse 21 says in the second part, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Men were moved by the Holy Spirit and they wrote what we carry today. And if it doesn't agree with scripture, it never made it into the canon, never made it into this Bible that we hold today. And so we go on and he, he, he's just said that the word of God is, is something you can establish your life on. We can have our experiences confirmed or even or either rejected based on what the word of God says. He says, but here in chapter 2 verse 1, but there were also false prophets among the people. So he's referring to the prophets of the Old Testament, but he's saying there were true prophets that prophesied of Jesus. And though they didn't quite get what they were saying at the time, now we have this word confirmed. And yet, at the time of the prophets in the Old Testament, there were also false prophets. There were also people that came along and said what the people wanted to hear. And so they were, of course, someone tells you what you want to hear about yourself i you're not going to deny it. You're going to go, yes, I'm going to claim that promise. You know, and there were prophets in the day of Jeremiah, prophets in the day of Ezekiel that came along and Jeremiah prophesied of this destruction that would happen in the nation of Israel. And yet there were prophets that came at the same time and said, no, no, that's not the Lord. There's going to be peace. God's going to take care of us. It doesn't matter how bad you sinned. He's going to take care of us and we're going to keep rolling as things have always been. And of course, it's going to be easier to claim that promise than the promise that God's getting ready to discipline you. And so they would go, well, uh, this is probably true, but we really like what this guy has to say, so we're going to believe it. We're going to grasp a hold of it. And, And what happened was they were deceived. And so he goes on here to say, there were also false prophets among the people, as there will be false prophets among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed but covetousness excuse me by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber And so he says, while there have been true prophets that have confirmed the works of Jesus, there were also false prophets. And guess what? Among you, there's also going to be false prophets. There's going to be false teachers. They're going to take the word of God and they're going to twist it. And so this is important in the life of maturity as a believer, because we need to learn what is real and what is counterfeit. And this is as old as Genesis chapter 3. If you'll turn there with me, Genesis chapter 3, there was this cunning serpent, and he came along, and Adam and Eve, two people, they were there. God created Adam out of the dust, he formed Eve out of his side, and they were told one thing. They said, You know what? Do whatever you want in the garden, tend it, master, it, manage, it, and multiply, and live with me in fellowship. And then he said, One thing I ask of you, don't partake of the tree in the midst of the garden. There was one tree. Now, it wasn't the only tree. It was just the one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, the serpent, chapter 3, verse 1, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, The first thing that Satan likes to do is to question God's instruction. Did God really say? And that's the first temptation. Did God really say? And anytime someone's compromised in sin and they start to explain away the word of God, that's the first thing they said. Is that really what it means? We have to be careful because I think that question should be asked. It's not a bad question. It's not a sinful question. But where are you going to look for the answer for that? Is that what you really meant? See, she's got two options. She can go, you know what? I don't know if that's what he did really mean. And then build a theology based on that. He didn't really mean that and move on. Or I don't know if you've ever thought of this before and maybe it just popped in my head. She could have also said, Lord, because she had unbroken fellowship with God. Unlike you and I know. She could have went, Lord, is that what you meant? And then, right then, problem averted, because then God would say, no, that's not what I meant at all. That's Satan. But she didn't. She reasoned within herself and thought, that's probably not what he meant, because that's what she wanted to hear. She had a desire for something that God didn't want for her. And so chapter 3 verse 2 says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but one fruit of the... of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden God has said you shall not eat it nor shall you touch it lest you die so she answers well she does well in this first one right but then in verse 4 the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die for God knows that in the day you eat of your eyes eat of it your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil God's withholding something from you Eve And it's something that's not going to harm you. It's going to be good for you. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she justified it. She looked at it and goes, you know what? I do need that and it's good for me. And I wonder if God is withholding something good for me and questions God's motives. So she took of its fruit and she ate. And we know that from that point on, it did not go well for us. The phrase that becomes prevalent from that point on is, and he died, and he died, and she died, and he died. Every one of us will die because of this deception, because of this temptation. So, interestingly enough, it goes on to say, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They were naked and ashamed. And if you look at the verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 25, it says there, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So if you've ever wondered where shame comes from, that's where it comes from, sin, sin. And so back here in Second Peter, chapter 2, it says there were also false prophets among people and there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive teachings, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves with destruction. In Genesis, we see Satan's playbook. And Satan is still at work, by the way. And he will use people that are among the church. Now, when someone outside of the church has ideas that reject God's word, do not be surprised. That makes sense. They're living according to what they believe whether or not they say they have any beliefs. I don't believe anything. That's not true. Everyone lives according to a standard of belief. They have a faith in something. But it's interesting because Satan didn't appear to them as Satan. He didn't come out like Halloween's coming up with the pitchfork and the red horns and, hey, I'm here to get you. He came alongside to help them, to enlighten them. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, it says that Satan comes to us as an angel of light. You're not going to be deceived by the pitchfork horn guy. You're going to see him and go, wow, you're Satan. Nice costume. Is that necessary? You know, you're going to mock him. But he comes along as a snake. Now, I'm not like Adam and Eve. Snake comes around, I start blowing shells. That thing's not going to last long. I don't care if it's a black snake or not. Not a big fan. Now I do like shooting stuff, you know, but the reality is Satan appears as an angel of light, which is interesting because I was thinking about this passage and I was thinking, why doesn't God get rid of Satan? Why doesn't he get rid of false teachers? Why didn't you just rip them out? You know, we're his bride. Why would he allow anything inside the church that could harm his children? And as parents, what do we do? We try to take everything out of our kids' lives that could harm them. And at a certain point, we go, well, I can't do that anymore. Because we recognize they've got to learn to walk on their own. You know, kid bumps his head on the corner of the coffee table. Yeah, we can go to Lowe's and get the kit and glue it and basically, you know, ruin our coffee table for all eternity because the glue is still on there. And we can try to take away all the, the problems and the things that can hurt them. But the reality is, is at some point, they're going to have to learn to walk around tables with corners on them. They're going to have to learn to walk on their own. They're going to have to learn to decide what's safe and what's not. And while we do want to be a protector for them, we can protect them too much. And then they become snowflakes. Isn't that the term? They become unable to take uh, any sort of adversity. But here we are. um, Jesus has already spoken about this. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. A parable of the wheat and the tares. And I want to point out to you that even as a pastor, here I am 12 years into walking with the Lord, almost 13, the reality is I've been reading the Word of God every year since I started walking with the Lord. I try to read through entire Bible in a year, every year, because number one, (laughs) His Word is life. I need it. I need to breathe, right? I need to eat. Spiritually, it's no different. But I also want to point out to you that I've read it 12 to 13 times now, And this parable just made sense to me Friday night. So if you don't understand something that's in God's word, keep reading it. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. God wants to open it up to you. He wants to help you in your daily walk. And so here we are in Matthew 13, verse 24, and Jesus speaking here. It says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said something that has perplexed me in verse 29. No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, I am a uh, green, not green thumb, but I'm a green gardener, okay? So I've pulled weeds, and I don't like pulling weeds. It's like the least exciting thing about gardening. I'm in there, and there's bugs, and then, you know, the weeds always have these thorns on them. You grab them, you pull them out, and it's just not fun. And it takes a lot of work, and weeds grow quicker than the plants many times. So I've always thought that what he meant here was when you pull the weeds, you're actually going to uproot the plants. And there might be something to that because they grow closer than tomato plants or, you know, it's it's essentially you're weeding out grass among grass. So that could be a portion of it. But something other that's interesting about wheat and tares is that when wheat grows up and has a stalk and it starts producing seeds, it actually looks exactly like wheat. Tares and wheat look the same. Did you know that? I didn't. I googled it. Apparently they look the same. So, What Jesus is saying here is, yeah, I would like them removed, but if you go in there and you start pulling out what you think are tares, you could actually pull out wheat and destroy part of the harvest. Good plants could be destroyed and ruined, and it's not a very careful way to do it. He says, instead, let it grow up, and at the time of harvest, apparently, according to this parable, he says, I will tell them, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. It seems to me at the time of harvest is the time to tell the difference. So until then, he's allowed tares to be among the sheep or the wheat. I don't want to mix metaphors here. But the idea is that he leaves them among us because you can't always tell. You can't always judge a book by its cover. It has to be judged by its fruit. There I am mixing metaphors again books, cover, I'm so confused. But the idea is we have to look at the fruit of the plant to tell what it is. And so if you look at wheat and tares before they've produced fruit, or in this case, seed, you can't tell the difference. So God, in his mercy and in his grace, says, I don't want one of these of my own to be plucked and destroyed from my hand. I would rather let the evil ones grow up among them, and then at the time of the harvest, or they're getting ready to be plucked out of the field or cut down and harvested and stored or burned. At that point, we can tell the difference. I don't know about you, but I find comfort in that because there were many years where I was amongst the church, where I was a terror. And in God's grace, he allowed me to stay there even though I could stumble somebody even though I could harm. The bride of Christ is not so delicate that God can't allow that stuff to be mixed in and deal with it later. And I'm grateful for that because I was still in the, under the influence of Bible teaching. I was still among believers. And as I was among those believers, God changed my heart. He, he took a tear and changed me into wheat. He's producing fruit now instead of just a weed. And so, In his grace, he shows us through this parable, and then he goes on in verse 37 of of Matthew 13, and he explains it to them. He says, He who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels." Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom and their Father who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so in this parable, we see how God has among his people still these, these that follow the wicked one, Satan. And they, notice what it says there in 2 Peter chapter, or verse uh, 2, chapter 2, verse 1. These false prophets will be among you, and they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Do you see the, the, the signature of Satan in that? They will see, they won't come in and say, hey, I'm going to teach something different. They'll come in alongside the truth and start to produce and and present things that are actually contrary to Scripture. And they won't announce it from up here, by the way. They'll announce it from among you. And so as believers, we need to be mature enough to tell what's the difference between the truth and those that are counterfeit. And that's another reason we need to add to our faith knowledge and virtue. And to knowledge, self control, and self control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, love, because as we add to our faith, we become mature enough to discern the difference between what's healthy for me as a believer and what is actually destructive doctrine. And so it says there they'll secretly bring in destructive heresies, denying the Lord who bought them even, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Now, interestingly enough, if you turn to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, again, foreseeing what would happen in the church, instructed his disciples and warned them in verse 15. Matthew seven fifteen, Jesus speaking says, "...beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing." Again, they don't come out and say, "'Hey, I'm a false prophet.'" I'm a false teacher. They come in, they've purposely disguised themselves so that they can get in and start cutting sheep out of the herd. He says, "'Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do not,' he says, "'Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit.'" But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Interestingly enough, if you go on to verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. They will use all the right words. They will call Jesus Lord, but they will deny him lordship. Lordship means that I'm your servant. I am the one who's going to follow you. Whatever you say, I will do. And yet they'll call him Lord and yet deny him by their works. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You've not allowed yourself to be governed by the Lord himself. That's what lawlessness means. There's no rule. There's no reign of Christ in your life, and it's proved by how you interact with Christ. We go forward in the church history, and you look at Acts chapter 20. Paul the apostle was also instructing. He was also warning those that he had invested in. And he is so concerned about it in the church at Ephesus that on his way to be, essentially the Holy Spirit was telling him, when you go to uh, Jerusalem, you're going to be bound in chains. You're going to be put in prison. But he knew that was what the will of the Lord was for him. But on his farewell, essentially his farewell tour, he's on a ship. He lands at a place called, I think it's Troas, Maybe it's Miletus, but in in Acts chapter 20, he arrives in Miletus, that's where it is, in verse 17, and he's sent to Ephesus. So he's not just, he's not meeting with the church anymore, he just wants to meet with the leadership. And he so much wants to meet with just the leaders that he actually avoids going to Ephesus altogether. He wants to meet with the leaders and tell them something very important for them since he's no longer going to be able to join up with them when, when, uh, when he's arrested and put in jail. And so in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. So he's pointing them to his character. The word of God and the preacher of God cannot be separated from the character of God. If there is someone among you teaching God's word, and yet his character doesn't align with that, including myself, don't follow him. Don't listen to him. Because the reality is, what he does with his life matters more than what he's teaching. That's why it's important not just to watch sermons online, but to get to know the man who's teaching you. And I want that because there's accountability for me in that too. I need to be called to the carpet. I need to be held accountable to the way I live my life, and if it doesn't align with the Word of God, then it's not aligned with the character of God, and therefore i 'm disqualified and so in chapter twenty, verse nineteen, he says, "You know what way that I excuse me, you know you know what manner I lived among you, verse nineteen, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but I proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks. What did he testify? He says here, repentance towards God. That means to hear God, what he says in his word, and if you're not in line with it, to allow him to break you of that. To repent means to turn around. Someone tells you you're going the wrong way and you stop and go, oh, I am going the wrong way. And instead of continuing, a repentant person will say, I'm sorry. I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I want to follow you, Lord. And you turn around. You change. God changes us. And if you're not changed by God, you're not a Christian. So he says here, repentance towards God and faith towards Jesus Christ. And see, Now, he says, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive for the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, and indeed, now I know that you all among, indeed, man, I'm having a hard time reading this morning. And indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. And here he says why he's innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned or neglected to declare to you the entire counsel of Scripture. That's why we teach the word verse by verse. I want to be guilty of the blood of all men, not because I'm not guilty of anything, but if there's one thing I can do, I can at least read the entire Bible to you. I can try to do it justice and make it understandable in some way as far as I understand. But he says, I'm not neglected to teach you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Something is worth what it's paid for by. We are worth the blood of Christ. So he says, shepherd the church of God. He says, I know this, that after my departure, look at this, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up. Notice he says that. From among you, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So servants of God will actually give, and then they'll give, and then they'll give to you. Servants of Satan will come in, and they will take, and then they will take, and when there's a little bit more to take, they'll take, and they'll leave you wrung out like a dry towel. You won't be poured into, you'll be taken from. They'll deny the Lord, they'll make themselves Lord instead. And so the apostle Peter here is writing, He says, they will come among you and they will teach their destructive ways. And look at this. Verse 2 says, many will follow them. Many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. When Jesus was in this life and he lived on this earth, many saw him cast out demons. And blasphemy was when they would look and say, he casts out demons by the power of the demons. He follows the prince of the demons. And so many, because they follow these destructive doctrines of false teachers, cause non-believers to blaspheme the Lord. As Christians, when we follow false teachings and we become hypocrites in the way that we live our lives, it actually pushes people away from the true Jesus, even though Jesus has nothing to do with it. So we need to know the difference between right and unrighteous and if we will do that then we won't stumble those and cause others to blaspheme the lord he says there by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber deceptive words that word there, deceptive actually means plastic plastic can be twisted And so the idea is they're able to be twisted. Perversion is taking something that is meant for good and and actually bending it and using it for something that wasn't originally intended for. We see this in Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Right after his baptism, he was taken out to the wilderness and he was tempted for 40 days. And it says there that he, he responded to the first temptation by quoting the word of God. And Satan at that point goes, well, I know God's word. By the way, Satan knows God's word better than most of us. And he quotes it back to the... He's quoting the word of God to the word of God, Jesus. And when he quotes the word of God, he twists its meaning. He says, why don't you go up to the pinnacle of the temple? The psalmist wrote that if the son of man will even stumble his foot against a stone that the angels will protect him from doing that. So jump off the pinnacle of the temple, everyone will know that you are the son of God. <laughs> and then Jesus craftily quotes back scripture and says, "Yeah, but scripture also says that you shall not tempt the Lord your God." And so, knowing the difference between a twisted scripture And a scripture itself that's in the right context is super important. Otherwise, we go, you know, that does sound good. So why is it that false teachers are still among us from this side? And I would point out to you because people are still listening to them. You want false teachers to cease? Stop listening to them personally. Know the difference, reject their teaching, and tell others this is a false teacher. Now, Don't make that your life's goal to tell everyone who's wrong. But when you see someone listening to something's false, help them understand. Come to them gracefully and point it out for their benefit and for yours. Their destructive teaching isn't just destructive. It will harm you. It will harm the listeners. So false teachers are still prevalent because we give them ear. The same thing's true about gossipers. You know, the proverb says that you, the way to shut up a go- someone who is a gossip is don't give ear to them. The same's true with a false prophet. If there's a false prophet among you, don't listen to their teaching. Reject it. But um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and then there's one reference after that. 2 Timothy, Paul writing to his protege, young Timothy, in chapter 4, said this. He said this to Timothy. He said, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Here's what I want you to do, Timothy. As a young pastor I want you to preach the word. I want you to herald the word of God. I don't want you to teach your own opinions. I don't want you to teach what other people are saying. I want you to preach what the word of God says. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. He says, convince, rebuke, exhort with all patience and teaching. For the time will come, and this is the time I want to point out, when they will not endure sound teaching sound doctrine but according to their own desires because they have itching ears they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and they will be turned aside to fables but you be watchful in all things be willing to endure affliction do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry this is how you will look totally different than those who are false. He says, use the word of God to teach what God has said, and then recognize that there will be a falling away. There will be an apostasy. People will turn away from the word of God because it's not what they want to hear, and they will believe what the false teachers are saying, and because of that, they will heap up to themselves, teach just because someone has a million followers does not make them a Christian or a a, a true teacher. Just because someone has a big ministry that's successful doesn't mean that they're a true teacher of the Word of God. And we got to be careful. And so he warns him, and he says they're going to turn aside. They have itching ears. So the question I have for you this morning is: Do you have itching ears? Now I'm not saying this because I want to be offensive. I, I I think that there are times when I have itching ears. I have things that I want to hear, but that doesn't make them true. Peter is writing to these believers. He's not writing to non-believers. He's writing to believers to warn them that just as there were true teachers and prophets that were confirmed by the life of Jesus, there are also false teachers among you. And you need to be aware of what they will do. And we'll get into that next week. I didn't cover as much as I wanted. But the point is, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Their false teaching will be judged. God will take care of that. And in verse 9 of this same chapter, it says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. He knows how to deliver us out of temptation. And He knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So, what what can we do? What's, what's the application here? Know what the real is, and then you'll be able to detect the false. Know what the real Jesus is, and you'll know the difference between the real and the false. John chapter 10, and then we'll close. John chapter 10, verse 11. We've talked about false shepherds, but we don't want to stop without comparing them to the true shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 11. Let's see what Jesus said about himself. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees. The wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. that I might take it again. No one takes it from me from me, but I lay it down on my uh, of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my father. And so what I want to point out is that a, a false shepherd will not lay down his life for the sheep. Someone who's in it for the money will see adversity and run. Not worth it. But a true shepherd is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And we have that best in Jesus himself. He didn't run when he was mocked. He didn't run when his life was threatened. He calmly set his face toward Jerusalem. And he laid down his life. He gives. And when we take, he gives. And when we need more, he gives. That's the true shepherd. And any true shepherd, under-shepherd of Jesus Christ will look just like him. They'll have their hitches and their giddy-up. They won't be Jesus but they will be conformed and transformed into the image of Christ. And that should be said of any follower of Jesus. He gives more. So that said, we're going to take, again, from Jesus this morning. He's provided his blood for our salvation. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. And and as we do, as is our custom here, we celebrate monthly communion. Communion. We take it not because we have to to be saved. We take it to remember our shepherd until he returns again in all of his glory to take us with him. But until then, we celebrate it because we need to remember that the salvation we've been given came at a great cost. The very cost of his body, the very cost of his blood. And as we celebrate that, even though it seems weird because it's like a memorial service, except this memorial service isn't over a savior who's dead. This body and this blood that we remember by these symbols here, he's not dead. He poured those out and God has given him a glorified body and he will bear the, spar- the, the, the very scars from his love for us for all of eternity. But until then, we celebrate his death and his burial and his resurrection. And we believe in that because as he was the first fruits of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And, and I love that because I'm scared of death. I don't know if I ever said that to you guys. I'm not necessarily scared to die. I'm scared of how I'm going to die. But the reality is no matter how I die, we're supposed to be dying daily. We're supposed to be daily giving up our right to reign over ourselves. Jesus was the perfect example of that and there are shepherds among us that, that are unwilling to do that. And I would say to you that that's a red flag. God wants us to be warned about what's true and what's false. And so um, our part is to make sure that we don't give ear to the false. Our part is to make sure that we give the good shepherd our ear, that we allow him to itch our ear, if you will, that we allow him to give us his word and, and to be really unsatisfied with anything else. So, Father, I thank you for this word from Peter. I thank you for the opportunity to celebrate communion, to partake in a meal with you. The children of Israel would take their sacrifices, the animal would be burned, portions of it, and then the meat would be offered up to you as an offering, and yet there would be a portion burned on the altar to you. There would be a portion that we would eat if we were Israelites, and yet now we just come and partake of what you've offered We don't have to bring a sacrifice our sacrifice is a sacrifice of praise and it's not even one we have to offer it's one we give because we're grateful and so father as we get ready to take communion this morning and as we celebrate this death that you allowed you laid down your life willingly for us i pray that you would help us to spend time with you and ask lord are there ways in which i've given ear to things that aren't true Are there things that I've read on the internet that sounded really great um, that actually don't align with your word? And Father, help us once again to have an appetite for only what you have said that we can anchor our hope in. So Lord, we begin communion and we celebrate it and we ask Lord that you'd bless this time that we would grow closer to you knowing the true so that we can not only justify and understand what is false but also so that we can truly see what all you've done for us. You're so gracious. You're so kind. You don't devour us. You actually pour life into us. And we're just grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.